0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hey, Cynical listeners, Kaiser here. We've got a cool event coming up for those of you who will be in the Boston area on the evening of Saturday, April 7th at 7 p.m. I imagine some of you are going to be in Cambridge then for the Harvard China Forum So while you're there, head on up to MIT, where we'll be doing a Seneca and GGV996 combined live show with Hans Tung and Zara Zhang from GGV Capital, the two hosts of the GGV996 podcast, which is about cross-border investment and entrepreneurship and technology. I have the pleasure of producing that show, and now we are doing a crossover show. I'm going to interview Hans about his fascinating experience as a tech investor in China and then Zara, Hans, and I will all speak with Yasheng Huang, who is professor of global economics and management at the MIT Sloan School of Management. He is a renowned economist, a really smart, smart analyst on the state of U.S. China relations, and he has been on our show before. This event will be free and open to all. The show will be at 7 p.m. on Saturday, April 7th at MIT. Space is limited, and the specific location will be included in the confirmation email that you'll receive, so make sure to to register for the event soon at 996.ggvc.com slash live. Again, that's 996.ggvc.com slash live. Now on with the show. Welcome to the Cynica Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SupChina. Subscribe to SupChina's free daily email newsletter, or better still, sign up for our SupChina Access Membership to receive discounts to our conferences, free admission to live podcasts, early releases of the Cynica Podcast, all sorts of premium content, and perhaps best of all, an invitation to join our community of listeners and readers in our lively Slack channel, where you can chat with our editorial team and with special guests that we bring in. Visit our website at subchina.com for a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo, coming to you today from the sidelines of the Association for Asian Studies Conference in Washington, D.C., Jeremy Goldkorn, editor-in-chief at Subchina, with whom I ordinarily host, is taking a well-earned holiday. As listeners to Seneca surely know, we talk often about the importance to contemporary politics of history or more specifically, the interpretation of history and how this is especially important when it comes to China, I can think of at least half a dozen shows over the last eight years where this has been a major theme. Well, today it is the central theme of the show, and with us is someone who I've admired throughout my entire 30-plus years as a student of things Chinese, Orville Shell. Orville is Arthur Ross, director of the Center on U.S.-China Relations at the Asia Society in New York. He is a former professor and dean at the University of California, Berkeley, Gobert's Graduate School of Journalism, and the author of what, uh, now what, 10 books on China?
1: Is that right, Orville? Who knows?
0: <laughs> he's lost count. That's how many there are. Anyway, he's written on an essay recently in uh, Washington Quarterly, looking at history and remembering and forgetting and party ideology. And that topic is going to be our focus today. Orville, welcome back to Seneca. It has been far too long. Pleasure. Uh, so I understand that you're now working actually on a book specifically on the topic of how the Chinese Communist Party's efforts to control, distort, and even just erase historical inquiry are going to impact China's development. Um, I suspect that somebody of your stature in the field could have chosen just about any topic uh, to write on and got the backing of uh, publishers. Uh, Obviously, you regard this topic as one of of real importance. Uh, Can you succinctly make the case for why the way that China reckons with its past turns out to be such an important factor in determining its future?
1: Well, it's a very interesting uh, situation. Uh, On the one hand, you have China, which I think by all standards is an astounding success in developmental terms, sure. And you know you, you, you look at it and here's the sick man of Asia who just which suddenly galvanized itself in the last couple decades and, and created this, this rather extraordinary uh, you know, uh, new nation. And it buried within that success, of course, is the question that I'm uh, pursuing. Uh, in this uh, book, and that is namely this. Can a society which has not gotten straight with its own past, in other words, been honest about it and come to terms with it, can it go on and have a successful future? Or do the sins of the past somehow influence and remain in its bloodstream, come back to haunt it and re-express itself? Uh, themselves in some mutant form. so this is this is really an interesting question that involves uh, a number of other uh, countries of the world, uh, such as Germany, would be the preeminent one. And certainly Russia, uh, you know what what has Russia done? Uh, with its sort of Stalinist past, it, uh, and what you about besides that? just glorify? <laughs> well, not now it is certainly yeah. tending to airbrush the past absolutely uh, yeah. out of any kind of a critical reanalysis. But there was a period, you know, after uh, Gorbachev and Yeltsin, when the archives opened and. Organizations like Memorial were looking into the st- Stalin's past and did have a very sort of highly evolved Even notion. after fifty-three, you know, with yeah. the Stalinization. Well, yeah, Khrushchev absolutely. did too, yeah. yes. And, and as you recall, when Khrushchev started reassessing st- the Stalinist period, that was when we had the Sino-Soviet break. That's right that's when China uh, got very jaundiced about the idea that China too might end up with a Khrushchev that could criticize a Mao, and there is a bit of that syndrome still uh, aloft in the land so I think for me the the, the question uh, and it's a very Western notion uh, that one has to come to terms with one's past, whether as an individual or as a nation and it's it has great the, uh, very deeply Freudian roots so can China dodge this one hmm. can they they sort of not examine their history or examine it and manipulate it?
0: and does the fact that history is so much more important for China as we' you know we've we've made that case? does that make it more or less likely that it'll be able to successfully dodge it? And that's, that's a big question. So, well, we say it all the time, right? How history matters more to China than it does for other major powers in the world. Uh, In fact, um, in this essay that I referenced earlier in Washington quarterly, I'm going to quote you here. uh, You write, nowhere is history more relevant to the future than in China, a nation that has for millennia seen its destiny as inextricably connected to the dynastic record of what has proceeded. So, Perhaps it's worth unpacking that a bit and and giving our listeners uh, an idea of historiography in imperial China and and defending the idea maybe that this remains lodged in Chinese thinking today.
1: Well, there was this notion, I think, throughout the dynastic period, which was based on sort of Confucian uh, learning, that the models... We're all in the past. You know, the the golden age of Zhou and the the period when the hundred schools of thought were contending when you had Confucius and you had uh, Mengzi and Shunzi and and you had legalism. uh, uh, And these were sort of the early beginnings of Chinese uh, theories on statecraft and political philosophy. So there was this reverence for the notion that when things go wrong, you want to look back where the, where the sort of pure models are, uh, the exemplars. Uh, and I, that's one reason I think it became so important to have a dynastic history. Of course, these dynastic histories were written by the dynasty uh, that followed, and they could write a revisionist version of their predecessor in a way that made them look good. But still, there was this deep reverence for history and the notion that History you, is a mirror, right? History is a mirror, and you had to keep straight with it, and it had a true north on its compass that dynasties might stray, but then they might come back to it, this whole notion in dynastic cycles of a, of a rejuvenation. But was was there ever
0: an historian who argued for a an absolute reckoning with the truth, the, the warts and all sorts of approaches to history, or were they always sort of more comfortable than maybe Herodotus was or Thucydides was with airbrushing?
1: Well, I think precisely because the dynasty which followed always got to do the history on the right. one I mean,
0: before. China's the, the 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 absolute case of the winner's right history.
1: right? Yes, but there was, I mean, Sima Qian, you know, grand historian, Sima Guang, these kind of people did did, I think write uh, uh, histories more like Plutarch I mean obviously there's always moral
0: lessons right there's
1: always biases of course but but they, 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 there was a notion of trying to to, to find some sort of a, a clear a clear uh, w- way to, to, to analyze a history not not as a not as a prejudiced tool to to make make uh, your own case in the present
0: we're always on slightly wobbly ground when we try to emphasize the continuities, there's always that chance that you're going to slip into a kind of essentialism, right? In this case, are you confident that the Chinese impulse to suppress unorthodox historical interpretations and to enforce that kind of amnesia, is that something that draws on traditional Chinese historiography, on on traditional uses of history? Or is it something that maybe has more direct antecedents, more direct inspirations from other authoritarian or totalitarian states. I'm thinking, of course, of of the Soviet Union.
1: Well, I think, uh, actually, uh, it does have certain Chinese historical roots, but actually the deepest and most sort of interesting root of all, of course, is the European root. And that root, uh, I think, goes right back to Sigmund Freud, who sort of uh, really uh, uh, analyzed uh, and was sort of the progenitor of the idea that the past, unresolved, is a danger to the present. Do I mean, you
0: think that the, the Chinese have imbibed this idea? Or do you think no. this is the Western idea? Right? No, this is very
1: much right. a Western idea. Right. In fact, right. sure. I, I would say it's a very un-Chinese idea. Uh-huh. Right. I mean, the Chinese do not really have any manifestly psychoanalytical theory of history, whereas the West does. And I think it was that root which very much uh, lay behind Germany's compulsion, ultimately, it took them a while to come to terms with the Nazi past. Hmm. And, and, and you, you recall, and I, I write about this in, in the article you cited in the Washington Quarterly, you know, right after the war, this uh, professor at, at the University of Heidelberg, Karl Jaspers, gave a series of quite amazing speeches. And he was both a philosopher a political philosopher and a, and, a, and a psychoanalyst and was very interested in sort of psychoanalytical theories of, of history and culture. And he laid out the roadmap for Germany very clearly and said that if Germany did not exhume its sort of Nazi crimes, did not analyze them, accept responsibility for them, make, uh, pay penance in a, se- in a sense, expiate itself, very, all very Christian terms, I have to say, that Germany henceforth could not be a a healthy society comfortable with itself. So now you could write this off and say this is very Teutonic, very European, and Chinese are not this way, and this doesn't apply to China. But I actually think my own view is, and this is what I'm kind of trying to research, that this is more of a human question than a cultural question.
0: You think that Freud was onto something real and universal then?
1: <laughs> I do think that there is a human impulse to set things right before you can go on, or there are all sorts of regrets that people need to hide things, people need to steer clear of things, censor things. You get into a terribly dodgy land if you're not open to an honest recognition of, of the things that that a government, a culture, a society, a nation did uh, to others and perhaps foremost to their own people. And God knows China has a litany of things it's done to its own people uh, during the 50s, 60s, and 70s, which is horrific.
0: Still, though, a very new idea, and, and I don't think we can point to too many instances in human history of of polities that have engaged in that kind of expiation.
1: Well, look at South Africa.
0: Well, then, I mean, again, '94, right? I yeah. mean, we're talking really only about. I mean, it's a, it's the the, the post-war. I don't think we can look even, well, certainly not at pre-war Germany. I mean, Weimar Germany was many things, but one yeah. that it wasn't was really sorry and apologetic about you know the the, the first I, war. I, right?
1: I think that's right, and I think the Roman Empire didn't do a lot certainly of not, yeah. uh, thrashing around about its crimes and the, and. I'm sure Sparta didn't and Athens is an in- interesting question because it did have its Greek tragedies where actually it did look at some of these questions. Yeah, engaged
0: a, with a hubris and right, right.
1: Yes, it had a very sort of evolved if untheoretically formed notion of psychology of power and of authoritarian rule, all of these things. So. The question is, is China different? It's a question that pops up in right. every single realm of endeavor.
0: Is it maybe particularly East Asian? I mean, Japan, perhaps, I think it can be. It could be said of Japan that it has had a lot of difficulty in wrestling and reckoning with its own history as well. Yes. You talk to any Korean about the comfort woman issue and then they'll, they'll probably tell you that.
1: Yes, and I think uh, it, 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 Japan, being a Confucian culture, has some of the same problems. However, I think the big difference in Japan is that it isn't a state-sponsored uh, censorship program that prevents people from doing this kind of research. I remember the, the uh, uh, publisher, uh, of the Yomiuri Shimbun, who mm-hmm. was a Japanese imperial soldier during World, World War II and a very conservative man, um, actually had his newspaper about must have been 10 years ago now undertake a, a massive pro- project which he published in the paper and it, he put it out in book form in Japanese, English and Chinese on the the, the he didn't call it war crimes he called it responsibility wartime responsibility mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. he investigated this and nobody stopped him now this is the kind of project which would be unthinkable in China
0: absolutely unthinkable but it also depends very much on who's in power in the LDP or whether it's the LDP in power at, at all i mean Japan has had not, I mean, there have been periods where uh, that kind of discourse is definitely possible and where it flourishes, but others where, you know, it, it tightens down as well. Again, I mean, of course, it's not state directed necessarily. Right. That's a very, very important. So there are
1: scholars usually or journalists, you know, writing books that not many people read who, who do go into this. But I do think the fact that they're there means that when society does become ready, or uh, if there are pockets of society that, that need to to turn to them, they can. Yeah. Now, it's interesting to remember in the case of China, this impulse has expressed itself at certain times. And sure. we saw it, for instance, in the early 80s. The
0: scar literature.
1: The scar literature, the Bao Gao Wenxue, yeah. the, the r- r- literary reportage was an example of this. There was a kind of a uh, an impulse to vomit up these crimes and look at them and and you know come to terms with them. So it isn't, I think, it's quite so easy just to say, oh, the Chinese are different.
0: Right. The the Cultural Revolution, though, is a, a maybe in a slightly different category. After all, the Cultural Revolution itself directed from by Mao, was aimed at the party structure itself. The leadership that came to power after 1979 or after 1978 really was, uh, was itself struggled against, to a man, pretty much. Uh, they weren't necessarily going to I mean, there were some walls that they wanted taken down. There were other load-bearing walls. You couldn't go all the way to the person of Mao but you could attack a lot of other things. So, I mean, it's a, it's a sort of different situation, right? There was a political expediency in allowing a little bit of, of that kind of reassessment of history.
1: Yes, that's true. I mean, even in Democracy Wall, uh, 78, 79, uh, you know, I remember very vividly, I mean, Deng Xiaoping did allow it because he needed it to overturn the ancien regime of Hua Guofeng. Right. Uh, and actually they did end they did attack Mao. People like Wei Jing Sheng did soundly attack Mao as a dictator. But on the other hand, Deng Xiaoping was not completely kicking the jams out and opening the doors, right, and right. you'll recall he had his four basic principles, which he iterated at this time, which are, I can't—no one can ever remember. They formed four walls that circumscribe. Yeah, you have the support of the party; exactly. you can't be against socialism. A few things, you know. So he didn't uh, just say there. Everybody had a carte blanche to go roaming back into history and say what they wanted. But indeed, there was an incredible proliferation of historical studies. I remember this man, uh, Feng Jicai, did a whole oral history on the Cultural Revolution. You got people looking into the Great Leap Forward. So relatively speaking, you did see these voices from the past expressing a deep need to look back and try to uh, try to a understand what did happen and then understand why it happened and finally to attribute some blame for what had happened right, right and then right. of course all that ended in 1989
0: let's um maybe quickly identify the events in 20th century history uh, that the party is really protective about what are the no-fly signs? What, what are they
1: well I think uh, I mean if you uh, you go back to the dynastic times it's it gets rather complicated I think um, you know almost anything that the party touches, including the May Fourth Movement, uh, which of course they're willing to embrace as a nationalist movement, an anti-Japanese, anti-you know uh, sort of uh, occupation movement. But they're less willing to em- uh, embrace the. Science sort of, and the. Yeah, right, yeah, right. science and democracy. Right. So, and then I think, you know, Mao Zedong has gotten to be incredibly uh, fraught. Uh, After the Cultural Revolution, Deng did have his 70%, 30% formula, acknowledging that Mao, Mao did some bad things, but in balance was okay. But I would say now, of course, people don't want to criticize him at all. Right. So this waxes and wanes. I, I think the Great Leap Forward is probably one of the most toxic Absolutely, areas. yeah. I would say- Especially the, the famine, right? Yeah, the famine when 30 to 40 million people died. But I would say even the anti-landlord campaign sure. of the early 50s when a million people were killed. And some of them were very small landlords; would hardly be accused of being major exploiters. And it, then, it doesn't
0: go back just to the precursor. Like you know, they see uh, 1919 as sort of the, the immediate forerunner for the 1921 creation of the party. But uh, even, for example, the late Qing reforms. This is this has become sensitive, right? Yeah. Well, because, because of the obvious parallels. That yeah, draw, right,
1: right. The obvious the parallels are very obvious, aren't they? That you have a. A dynasty that's been in power for a long time. And interestingly enough, there was this dynastic notion I mentioned a moment ago of rejuvenation, of fuxing. Yeah. And now, lo and behold, uh, Xi Jinping has proclaimed that China is in a fuxing, a rejuvenation. Right. Uh, it's of his, his sort of communist dynasty. It got to the point where it was corrupt it seemed to be wobbling on its axis as many dynasties did and it needed to be kind of kicked in the pants with a reform movement and he gave it the anti-corruption movement and now he's given it a good dose of new a reinvigoration of of party discipline so there are are parallels so of course he doesn't want to talk about the Qing dynasty, because everybody knows where that went. In that's 1911, right. it ended.
0: <laughs> that's, you know, why, who, who was it? I think Li Keqiang was handing out copies of, of the Ancien Regime by Tocqueville and, yeah. to, to make that, that precise case. Um, I mean, other, other ones, I think one that we should definitely talk about is uh, the role of the communists during the War of Resistance, right? Mm-hmm. And that's been one where allegations of historical nihilism have been drawn against people who have... Said well, really look look at the major battles. It was all all the set piece battles where the KMT, Um, you know, there was some yeah sure the Fourth Route Army did some guerrilla actions, but you know engaged in few of the set piece battles that really won the war. Yeah, fascinating. I mean, there there are all sorts of of other little obscure topics, but uh, let me let me ask you a question that I think may to some of our listeners be redolent of whataboutism, but I think I'm going to uh, do this anyway. It's really not meant to, uh, to exonerate in any way. But I think, you know, Orville, as you know, I now reside in the American South. Jeremy also, you know, he lives in the South. Uh, he said the same thing to me. I mean, you hear it a lot now, especially with the debate over Confederate monuments. Uh, growing up, at least, I, I heard this very insistent voice, uh, especially coming from scholars who, who were sympathetic to the Confederates uh, this it was it was what we were taught in school unfortunately that that it was about states rights uh that the civil war was uh you know ultimately about the right of secession and not about you know that slavery was <laughs> i mean it's, it's a ridiculous idea now i mean looking at it but that was that was in that was a dominant thing in my in my childhood uh and there's you know a lot of very convenient forgetting of uh, ugly chapters you know the whole sl- slaughter of both uh, blacks and and of of northern republicans during reconstruction and you know, native people, americans oh absolutely yeah sure that too you know in the south they call this tendency to nurture historical grievances the, the the backward glance uh i should point out i mean i really thoroughly examine all the teaching materials that that are put in front of my children there who are now in north carolina schools i gotta say they, they do an ex- excellent job i mean there's nothing i find objectionable it all passes muster with me but i bring this up because you know we can understand this human instinct to avoid confronting our own ugly past and and the impulse to you know kind of harness history toward modern political ends, as a lot of conservative Republicans are doing right now with this Confederate monument issue. Um, this has a lot in common with China now.
1: Yes, it does. I mean, I think there is an impulse, uh, and it isn't exclusively Chinese, that people do not want to revisit painful periods in their lives or their nation's life. Right. Like they don't want to pull the band-aid off the wound.
0: Right. Well pick the scab off, as we often say, you know, that risk and reinfection.
1: Exactly. And I think in some cases you can legitimately make the argument that if you do I mean, look at the Balkans for instance, if you do pull the scab off of the ethnic tensions there, you're liable to get some more fratricide. Right. and more killing. So it isn't simply to say that in all cases one should recklessly plunge back into history and force people to confront all of their crimes and differences. But I think ultimately, I, I believe that it's a generally speaking a healthy thing, and this is why I'm for an open society, to allow people to, to explore what went wrong Whether it's 100 years ago, 10 years ago, 30 years ago, and that in a certain sense, if you have strong institutions and if you believe in openness and and if you believe in the therapeutic process of going back and doing this, it does help make a nation feel comfortable with itself. So when but it goes none of those forward,
0: conditions really is in place in China. It, it no. is, uh, right.
1: No, I mean, and, and this is what makes China so incredibly brittle, that there's so many no-fly zones, both in present-day life and in history.
0: And these are all connected to the, the broader questions of, of broader inquiry, and it's not just historical inquiry, right? Right. It's, it's directly related to internet censorship. It's directly related to press freedom. It's directly related to uh, all, all the other individual expression that... that, that...
1: People. It's a package of, right, of a package. efforts to control, and I think you know, history is just one aspect of it. But at some point, you know, the Communist Party will either truly reform or it will be uh, thrown out, and then you will have people who will go back, and uh, you know, they will look at this for better or for worse. Uh, I think the danger now for China is that as long as the party is the only ship at sea— Nobody wants to capsize it.
0: Yes, that's well put. Um, let's talk about this case for forgetting, which, you, mm. I mean, you quote David Reif, who wrote a book that doesn't mention China, as you, as you note in that piece, but nonetheless is very applicable. Uh, so he says, I'm quoting from your piece, what, what if, at least in some places and on some historical occasions, the human and societal costs—you you were talking about the Baltic states, for example— the the human and societal costs of the moral demand to remember is too high to be worth paying, and then you write. Moreover, while the act of remembrance may sometimes seem like an ally of justice, in actuality, Reef warns, it is no reliable friend of peace, much less democracy. Um, so let's ask the question that Reef does, which is, since historical memory has been and continues to be toxic in many parts of the world, why put our ethical trust in it? No matter how morally desirable such an outcome might prove to be, uh, what what can we actually do about it? I, I mean, you know, and how do we move societies toward a level of preparedness so that maybe they can pull the bandaid off, pick at the scab?
1: Well, so this is exactly what made me get interested in this topic vis-a-vis China, because I wanted to come at it with an open mind. You know that my own inclination is that people who who are not truthful about themselves and truthful about their pasts are people who are often very difficult to deal with. You know, when you bottle up some, I mean, crime and punishment says it all. Uh, So if you sort of extrapolate that to a nation, and and I'm not saying that one should, but I'm saying it's not illogical to think that way, you can come up with a general principle that, that by and large, where possible, it's always better for a nation to come to terms with what it did rather than to hide it. Because the, the, the price of hiding and of, of dodging it and forcing people not to go there, it can be very high indeed. But this is a really interesting question. China's done pretty well, I would have to say, with showing relatively little ardor a few little periods of the, the last 30, 40 years. Of oh, well, you're married
0: to a Chinese woman. You know what it's like. Yes, I, I mean, know. And so there's they, they actually find value sometimes in, in burying, in just let's not excavate that. Why exhume that? There's no point in it. it, it we're just going to pretend that body is not there in the backyard. We're well, gonna- so
1: l- let me raise an example that is very much in the news right now Donald Trump's affairs. Right. Should these just be buried? Can his marriage survive? Just saying, there were all these playmates and porn stars that he was fooling around with. But hey, that was ten years ago. Let's <laughs> that was ju- three years. Ago. <laughs> <laughs> well, whenever right. you know right. when's the right, cutoff right, 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 date. That's right. another question. Let's just not talk about it. <laughs> so, is that a realistic scenario? You have to ask yeah, of yourself. Not. Okay, so you say, of course not. So then why, maybe you then would have to conclude that- I Even mean,
0: beyond it, my seething hatred for Donald Trump. Yes, well, I mean- that, That's most G- of my, of course not, comes from.
1: Kaiser, you also have to ask then, you know, maybe it, it, it is, is equally as untenable a strategy for a great nation. Hmm. Because I think there is something in human beings that, I mean, if we do believe in truth, right, that wants to know what the truth was and why things- Went the way they did, maybe the better to be corrected or hedged against it in the future.
0: The parallel that I tend to go to, rather than comparing it to other states, uh, and, and and this this sort of insistence on forgetting, uh, is actually to the Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. I think that that's a, a really interesting comparison uh, because you know again. It actually maybe even lays greater claim to inerrancy to infallibility or it has at least in the past uh, than the communist party it definitely has its share of skeletons its share of load-bearing walls that you know you, you just can't take a sledgehammer to them no matter how 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 much in the way they are of a clear path to, to whatever uh because the edifice comes down the whole historical edifice
1: and yet this pope does show some inclination. He's got a
0: sledgehammer in hand, yeah. Yeah,
1: and he is acknowledging some things that we thought we'd never see the the, the Pope acknowledge. And the other thing that's so interesting about the Catholic Church is that they have a very deeply evolved notion of expiation of sins, that you must confess, that you can't be healthy if you withhold your sinfulness, and you must also pay penance, and you must also... uh, you know, make, make them right. right. So, now, I'm not saying that China has a, although there are a lot of Christians now in China, this too is a thing like sort of Freudian uh, sort of conceits that aren't, aren't embedded, traditionally speaking, in Chinese culture. But, but there, there are elements of it nonetheless that, I mean, why would Confucius uh, be so in favor of xiu shen? self-reflection, mm-hmm. and trying to find the truthfulness of matters. Well, because I think finally truth does matter to human beings. It matters to governments. And that, it, that also qualifies equally, I think, think, to historical truth.
0: I want, I want to uh, get back specifically to recent years in China. And talk about document number nine. Our listeners are probably going to be familiar with it. It's come up a number of times on this show. Uh, this was released internally and then subsequently leaked in the year 2013, I believe. Uh, it features pretty prominently in, in that paper that you wrote in Washington Quarterly. No doubt it will feature prominently in the book that you write. Can you tell our listeners about that document and what it specifically says about history and historical inquiry?
1: Well, I mean, Document 9, uh, it's never actually been confirmed by the party, but everybody believes it's pretty much a true document, which lays down all of the sort of no fly zones that things that shouldn't be talked about.
0: Seven of them in Yes, all, right?
1: Seven of them in all. In fact, you can find this on the ChinaFile.com website. We, we translated it into in English. And I think this is sort of the most um, evolved, explicit expression. Of this notion that if the party can control what people say, what they think, what they research, uh, and and kind of prevents them from going back and exhuming these unseemly corpses from the past that will only make trouble, that then things will be okay. And <clears throat> I think this is the very question which I I, I want to analyze and see finally uh, what's been the historical record in other countries that have done this, or and, and why? What are the countries that have had a a, a relatively thorough or at least a, a good faith effort right. to try to come to terms with? Who they are and what they've done to themselves in the world historically speaking.
0: Rwanda, and South Africa. Rwanda,
1: certainly South Africa with sure. the Reconciliation Germany, Committee. That. And Germany, I mean I think Germany is really the poster child because you recall it took them 20 years and only under Willy Brandt and the Social Democrats in the 70s did they finally come around to looking at at What really had happened in 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 the Third Reich, and you will remember, Billy uh, Brandt uh, actually went to Warsaw, and he uh, over to the Warsaw Ghetto, and he fell to his knees, yeah, yes. and he 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 apologized.
0: That was an extremely poignant moment.
1: Yeah, a very poignant moment, yeah. and it was a kind of a a a extremely symbolic gesture to say, we did this, we are sorry, and it was our fault. And it is our responsibility to understand why we did it. And all of those sort of inferences, I think, are what lay behind now the ability of most European countries to feel comfortable with Germany. Mm. Whereas if Germany had never gone to that place and never made that Herculean effort, put the brass plaques all over Berlin where where atrocities had happened, the, the 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 Jewish you know, museum and all the memorials, I think people would still find Germany very toxic and very dangerous and not want to touch it. Right.
0: Back quickly to document number nine, that introduces this idea of historical nihilism, Yeah. which has, you know, been talked about a lot in the context of historical inquiry. I'm curious, Orville, do you think that that was directed more at domestic historical inquiry, historical inquiry by Chinese historians or... Is it like so many of the other things that are in Document 9, ultimately sort of about these hostile foreign forces?
1: Well, there's certainly a measure of the hostile foreign forces is one thing. But I think the idea of historical nihilism really is the warning to Chinese, don't go back into history in a way that, that, that uh, analyzes it. Uh, that will make the party look bad. That will be considered a hostile act. To put it in Maoist terms, that is an antagonistic contradiction, right. not a contradiction between, among the people. So I think you know, the, 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 that is very explicitly uh, saying, don't pull the scab off. It's not going to get you anywhere. It's not going to get us anywhere. And that's the question I think we need to analyze. Is that, can that work? Is that a sensible and smart strategy? You made a big, you had a very bad patch, a tremendous amount of savagery and brutality sponsored by the party. Does it matter if you don't go revisit it? Can you just go on? Can it just be sort of cut off like some stage or some rocket going to the moon and dumped into the ocean and everybody forgets about it? And you know that expression in Chinese when you start raising something and people will say, be a yeah. you know, let's not talk about it. It's a natural human instinct.
0: Is it the case that what they're ultimately most worried about aren't necessarily these attacks on individual, what I'm calling load-bearing walls, individual instances, the Cultural Revolution, the Great Leap, famine, what have you, you know, communist participation in the Second World War, but attacks that they see as against the... the 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 mother of all load-bearing walls that central narrative that's taught in schools about the china's humiliation by you know imp- imperial predators in in the 19th century its redemption by the party i mean you know these foreign sinologists when when they are t- take, they're they're in a kind of a bind right by by challenging that narrative uh as part of those hostile foreign forces i mean they, you only show how salient it is how how real that threat that that threat is uh it's 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 quite a clever uh, kind of, of of a bind they've got us in huh
1: well it's it's paradoxical isn't it that historical research on the savagery of of the japanese occupation which was indeed savage and even on the the you know the British and the French the various intrusions into China during the 19th century th- these are pretty fair game sure and as long and you you can that was them not us though, that right. was them right. doing it, it to us to us right the part that's sensitive is the part where china took over instead of outsourcing its oppression to foreigners it took it over itself and, <laughs> op- and oppressed its own people and i would have to say did a much better job than the foreigners did and that's very sensitive.
0: One of the load-bearing walls we haven't talked about is Tiananmen, of course. Uh, I, mean, I just ran into Louise Lim last night. She wrote a book, of course. Um,
1: on amnesia. I can't remember what it's called. The Republic of Amnesia. <laughs> right, of course. <laughs>
0: what do you make of this? I mean, I, I will occasionally—I mean, I was on a panel the other day uh, in where I live in Chapel Hill— and there's a young woman who was born in 1988 or 1989 uh, who was on this panel with me and insisted that until she left China, she, she grew up in Wuhan, but she actually went to college in Beijing, said that she had never heard so much as mention of anything having happened in 89. Is that... I mean that 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 doesn't accord with what I've experienced. I don't I've actually met people who who've made fun of the idea foreign journalists coming up to them with a picture, you know, the iconic photo of tank man and saying, "Oh no, never heard of him, never seen that before." Uh, I mean it's as a way to quickly get out of a, an uncomfortable conversation, but <laughs>
1: well, I think you know, listen, uh I have to say uh you ask the average junior high school student in America, where Paris is, and they haven't a clue. Sure, sure. Uh, and I think that there is a, a whole segment of youth in China that are public, you know, studying computer science or business administration, and they really haven't a, a, a clue about history, and they're really not very interested, and they're certainly not being fed it in, on television. So they will know about the Japanese occupation because there's ten programs a night on about right. fighting the right. Japanese, but they'll have no clue about 1989. So it's possible, but I think um, you know that's a. Pretty big one to sort of put off limits. I mean, oh yeah, 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 And it's uh, you know, it takes a lot of resources to do that. A lot it, it of wasn't,
0: it, the odd thing is that it wasn't always off limits. It used to be you know it was talked about, but with within the confines of a very specific narrative about you know a violent uprising by.
1: That's right. The Chinese Communist Party had its version, right? And, uh, and but then I think they 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 discovered better not talk about it at all to spin it with our interpretation better just a deep six it entirely right 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 and i think that's that's what they've decided to do and that
0: famous monument in the simpsons says beijing tiananmen square in 1989 nothing happened here right man.
1: well yeah that's uh that's sort of a i think what the party would would like they would like to erect such a monument <laughs> <laughs>
0: Let me go back a little bit historically. I mean, one thing I, I want to point out is the party's controls on historical inquiry don't just extend back to the birth of the party, like we were saying before. Uh, you know, there are obvious stains on 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 you know the the legacy of the party like the great leap and um, the cultural revolution in Tiananmen, but they go back a lot further uh one example is i mean we happen to be recording here in the home of Jim Millward, uh who is one of the, the folks associated with the so called new ching history along with people like um Pamela Kyle Crosley and and Mark Elliot and uh Evelyn Rosky, of course but wh- why th- that i mean wh- you know the, the the central argument i guess we could just just say is, is that the Qing were not uh, as sinicized as maybe Chinese historians or traditional historians have, have suggested, uh, that they instead retained a pretty distinct ethnic identity and that greater China, as we understand it, was just one part, albeit a, a very important part, of a much broader empire that included Mongolia, that included uh, Xinjiang or Turkestan, that included Tibet. What What bothers them so profoundly about the new Qing history? What's the the source of their objection? What looks so threatening about that?
1: Well, I guess the whole idea of minorities. I mean, once you open that door, uh, then you're into the Xinjiang and the Tibet question. I mean, because the Manchus were a minority. Right. And they came in and they, they did get sinicized to an extraordinary degree, but their, their decrees and, and were still translated into, into, into uh, you know, Manchu language. And there was a class of sort of Manchu aristocrats that I remember early on when I first went to start t- studying Chinese in Taiwan, there were, there were a whole group of them there. You know, begowned and known as Manchu. So there was a lingering ethnic identity of the Qing dynasty. But on the other hand, I think the Communist Party likes to look at the Qing as a Chinese dynasty. And not only that, but uh, it is their model. For the multi-ethnic empire.
0: That's right. They have to see themselves as a successor state. It's part of. That's the, right. It's a, it's a pillar of, of legitimacy, right?
1: Otherwise, how do you have Tibet, Xinjiang, Inner Mongolia, and all of these other sort of minority? Uh, Taiwan. Uh, so, the but you know it, it, it's very curious when you go back and you read uh, Sun Yat-sen. Of course, he was rabidly anti-Manchu. <laughs> right. And his whole notion of a Republican revolution very much departed from the idea that it was an alien dynasty. Fan Qing, Fu Ming, you know, get rid of the Qing and... Restore the Ming. Restore the Ming, which was a pure Han dynasty. But also, I should add, about half the size of the Qing and had no Mongolians, Uyghurs, Tibetans, or Manchus in the deck. It was just central China.
0: And yet, Sun's map of, of what constituted China was... The old borders of the Qing dynasty. Yes. Yeah. So he never really squared that circle,
1: though. No, he didn't. And nor did John Kai-shek. And even when John uh, Kai-shek marched off to, or floated off to Taiwan... Uh, I remember very vividly in the 60s, they had an office of Mongolian and sure. Tibetan and, and Uyghur affairs. You can still buy maps in Taipei today <laughs> yeah. that
0: include include Mongolia, outer Mongolia as part of China. Right? So
1: they they didn't fully absorb uh, Sun Yat-sen's uh, kind of anti-Manchu bias.
0: So I uh, guess so my final question to you is, what can we do about it? I mean, my gut says the best way to address this is to train more historians here in the u.s or elsewhere in places where academic inquiry is unfettered and and then flood the field back in in china with them i'm you know more people who who sort of have the tools have the research methodology have uh is that hubris i mean am i I assuming that am i overestimating the objectivity of american historical training
1: no, I don't think you are I mean being uh you know having been trained as a historian and fancying myself still somewhat of a historian, I think you know historians, in the best sense of the word, are not nationalists, they're universalists, and they study what they study and they're not Americans studying Chinese or, or, you know, they may have an element of that. But but any human being should be able to study any society or civilization. And I do think we're in one great big pot. And our, I do think his, history is deeply undervalued these days, no more so than in China, but certainly in America as well. So I think it's really important that that people go on to do this to You know, I was involved in making that film, The Gate of Heavenly Peace. Great film. And one of the reasons we did it was because we knew the doors were going to close in China. And we managed to do it before they did. And we figured there really did need to be a historical record of what happened, if for no other reason, for China.
0: Right.
1: And so, oh. Maybe it was made by Americans, but it's still there for anyone who wants to look at it, including Chinese. And I think that's really important. That's what the historical record should be doing.
0: You're, you're right. I mean, nationalism is just inherently hostile to contrition. It's yeah. inherently hostile to remembrance. And I think it's, this is only going to be really possible in some sort of notional post-national milieu, um, or I I don't think that'll ever happen, but um, it strikes me as the case that uh, not picking at the scab of actually forgetting uh, is more attractive uh, always when there is some unfulfilled national project, uh, which Mm. it, it has to be powered by you know this—the uh, sense of aggrievement of, of humiliation—and and yeah, unfortunately, we're that not near the end of that here.
1: Yeah, the, the the aggrievement and the humiliation, which is so deeply a part of the Chinese narrative, and we've discussed this before, um, is what mitigates against exactly the kind of historical veracity, which is essential if you're going to go back and honestly look at what happened.
0: Right. We just as you know, because of China's. Uh, understanding of itself as a victim of of foreign colonialism, it will never be able to see its presence in Xinjiang or in Tibet through the sort of colonialist lens. They'll just never understand that 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 can be turned on them.
1: So that, I think, also means that it is important that other countries who care about Chinese history or who have, you know, the United States, Europe, Australia, and there are many, Japan, that they not only engage in this kind of research as, as kind of a surrogate for China, but that Chinese who come over here and stay here or go to Australia or Japan also do it on behalf of their own, their own country. Right. So that the historical record keeps that and has it in repose for that moment when China itself may become receptive to revisiting these these, these times.
0: Orville shell. What a pleasure to have you back on the show. And we hope that we don't have to wait as long as we did last time before we have you on again. So before we pack up here, let's offer our listeners some recommendations. And before that, I do want to remind our listeners that the Seneca podcast is powered by SupChina. Sign up for SubChina access to receive our weekly bonus newsletter and more premium content, including early ad-free versions of this very podcast. Follow us at, at @SubChinaNews on Twitter and on Facebook, and be sure to leave us a positive review on the Apple iTunes store. So, on to recommendations, Orville. After you.
1: Well, uh, you know, as to recommendations, I, I, I enjoy the, your podcast because I think you you do embrace sort of the full menu of things which need to go into any understanding of any aspect of China or the U.S.-China relationship. And with that in mind, I would say that my recommendation uh, is really a Chinese writer who's been translated by many people, uh, namely Lu Xun, the, yes. great, <laughs> the great essayist, short story writer of the, the teens and 20s, died, I think it was 1937, was it? Um, and I like him because he loved history, loved philosophy, loved traditional culture. He also hated it. Right. So he was a kind of personification of the recognition that this old culture was at once holding China back, but he was devoted to it. It was him. And in his struggle to figure that contradiction out, He brought to bear literature and poetry, and he did so in a marvelously ironic way that I think plums the deep complexity of China's sort of love-hate relationship with itself, with the world, with its past, with the present. And... uh, he is a man you, you, you must read, I think, if you, when you just can't figure out how to talk about China in a way that says why it's so interesting and so complicated and so fraught. What the hell's going on? You go to Lu Xun and he's got some just amazing things, uh, characters and, and ways of putting it that just make it all come to light.
0: And what you've just described is is a man who I'm mean, this this sets very much apart from other sort of more radical iconoclasts of the May 4th period, people who really wanted a, a, a cleaner break. He he knew there were no clean breaks. He knew that, that it was a messy thing that you would have to wrestle with that, that the ghosts were going to knock around in your house for a very long time.
1: Because he couldn't make he a couldn't clean break. That, right. He loved it, he hated it. He was impaled on the very dilemma that uh, ended up being the great sort of engine of the point of tension in everything he wrote, and it is still the point of tension in China. This deep complexity and 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 uh, uh, you know, kind of uh, loving yourself and hating yourself, and loving the foreigners and hating the foreigners, and worshiping them and looking down <laughs> at the it's same time. L- uh,
0: the Levinson uh, thing. I mean, it's it's yeah. you know the the. What is mine and what is true, right? Uh, the, that eternal tension there. That's a lovely recommendation, and I think it's it's everyone should always go back and revisit Lucian. Yeah. Uh, do you have any particular translations that you you would?
1: Well, I mean, hold there's up? the old one that uh, uh, Gladys and Shen Yang did in yeah, the old Foreign uh, Languages Press thing that it came out. I think in the '60s, '50s, '60s. But there have been a number of other good ones, uh, and you know, there's so many. I was just looking online before the broadcast that um, you know uh, there's one uh, that just came out of his, uh, uh, his Wild Grass, which is a wonderfully mysterious series of short essays. These uh, you know that that he wrote, uh, and there's a, a, a lamp uh, under the lamplight at midnight. Uh, there's a new translation out. Uh, that's 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 quite interesting. That it puts all of these these later essays together. But oh, great. I mean, I'll have to check that out. You can roam through Amazon. There 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 are many different editions.
0: Speaking of Amazon, my recommendation is just I mean it's it's stupid. It's just a gadget. But I, I picked up an Amazon Echo Dot. Uh, I I had a Google Home wasn't really finding Mm -hmm. I could do much with it. And the really frustrating thing was that, you know, it's a it's a speaker, right? And it doesn't connect via Bluetooth to your own stereo. I mean, spend all this money on lavish stereo gear. I want to be able to, you know, play my Spotify playlist. So if for no other reason, you can just tell your Amazon Echo dot play my XXX playlist from Spotify and up it comes. Adjust volume by you know, skip this song, whatever. It's 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 marvelous. I actually find I'm getting a ton of use out of it, uh, and they're super cheap. You can buy them used all over the place. You know, twenty bucks, thirty bucks. Uh, so I highly recommend it. You can just plug it right into your stereo, uh, and and this makes it a whole lot more useful. I think than uh, than than the Google Home so far. Anyway, uh, I know uh, very boring compared to your your erudite recommendation, but <laughs> there it is. Uh, Orville, thanks once again. And uh, now we head back to the conference for our panel, huh? Yeah, cool. That's going to be fun, yeah. yeah. Jeremy, I, I wish you had been here to hear all these academics deliver papers, uh, which I know is your very favorite thing in the world. <laughs> Orville, say hi to Jeremy, would you?
1: Hi, Jeremy. It's been great fun. Sorry you're not here, but thank you, Kaiser. It's been fun.
0: Indeed. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn. Drop us an email at Seneca at SubChina.com. Visit our Facebook page at Facebook.com slash SubChina News and follow us on Twitter at, at SubChina News. Thanks for listening and we will see you next week. Take
1: care.